Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Monday, November 13th, 2023 from Peach Fish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A very harrowing story on the cover of the New York Times. It was about the plans of uh, Mr. Donald J. Trump. Perhaps you've heard of him. Sweeping raids, giant camps, and mass deportations inside Trump's 2025 immigration plans. Well, the plans make references to the camps and raids. My question is, will there be camps and raids? I'm not discounting the depths of this man's soul or his retinue. I am wondering about the issues of execution, which he would like to do to many, many illegal immigrants. But this story, though unprecedented, it was also strangely familiar. Where had I seen this presentation before? A splash page, Trump set against a dramatic backdrop doing a presidential or candidatorial business. Here he was speaking in front of Kleeglites as no doubt a rally cheered his words about immigration. Oh yes, let us go back to July when the New York Times had a story of Trump descending, if not Air Force One, then Trump Force One. Under the headline, Trump and allies forge plans to increase presidential power in 2025. That A1 article by Jonathan Swan, Charlie Savage, and Maggie Haberman This one, months later, by Charlie Savage, Maggie Haberman, and Jonathan Swan, each has obligatory references to the courts maybe having something to say about that. This weekend's that policy's legal legitimacy, like nearly all of Mr. Trump's plans, would be certain to end up before the Supreme Court. That article, back in July... Other former Trump administration officials involved in the planning said there would also probably be a legal challenge to the limits on a president's power to fire heads of independent agencies. Mr. Trump could remove an agency head, but teeing up the question for the Supreme Court. So in both cases, Trump offers through his minions, through members of his retinue, some wild plans. They could point to a clause or two in federal legislation. They can issue a phrase like Schedule F. Seems kind of scary. Wasn't that what the emperor used to turn all the stormtroopers against the Jedi? Anyway, the people who are being interviewed love the chance to get on the front page of the New York Times and make it seem scary and legitimate. Scariness is the point. But actually doing the thing is less of the point. So it's definitely an excellent piece of campaign rhetoric. And were it to happen, it would be a horrible piece of legislation. But the gap between, well, let's put aside the question of will Trump get elected, but the gap between coming into office and wanting or saying you want to do this thing and actually doing that thing, that gap is the most persistent yawning gap of 
the Trump experience. We can all remember quite a few things he talked really big on and then didn't do. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's a peace treaty and Kim Jong-un gave up his nuclear weapons and decided to go into the real estate business in North Korea. Maybe that happened and I missed it. From everything, the little things from parades in Washington, D.C. with tanks to, um, quite infamously, this big giant wall that the Mexicans were going to pay for. Lots of things that'll get you on the front page. Lots of phrases like Schedule F. Not a whole lot of actually doing it. And I wouldn't dismiss this, and I wouldn't shunt this aside, but I could have used a few more paragraphs on the, yeah, even though he says so, and even though the courts might get in the way, there's a whole lot of other obstacles between Donald Trump and the quote that ended the July piece, we will demolish the deep state, we will expel the warmongers from our government, we will drive out the globalists, that quote also echoed in the quote that ended the recent piece from Stephen Miller. Bottom line, President Trump will do whatever it takes. A lot of distance between that rhetoric and actually doing the thing. Don't think me sanguine. Don't think me dismissing the possibility that very curdled, dangerous man would like to at least give someone with more energy and wherewithal than him the ability to try it. Don't think that's not true, but there is a giant difference between someone pointing to a schedule with the letter F and actually being F acacious in changing major U.S. policy. I am right now, by the way, I speak to you. I think I'm in the air. I might be on the ground. I am either going to or in Israel. I am in Israel. A uh, friend of mine, foot the bill, a listener of the show, he said, come to Israel. I have this program and you will meet government officials. We will tour some of the kibbutzes, kibbutzim is the plural, down south that got hit by the October 7th terrorist attacks. You'll meet with all sorts of people that you're not going to ever be able to get a chance to be in the room with, let alone ask questions to. So that's why I'm here doing my journalistic duty. I will bring back the tapes of the interviews I have done. We are always interested in doing what it takes to track down fascinating talkers and people in the middle of major world-changing events. And as I said on the Saturday show, we're trying to get a broad swath of opinions of experts. But here I am in Israel doing what I can do to learn, have conversations, and bring it all back to you. On the show today, General Gus Perna is a retired four-star general and was the chief operating officer of the federal COVID-19 response for vaccine and therapeutics. You might know it by its catchy name, Operation Warp Speed. He joins to talk about the logistics of distributing the vaccine to the U.S. and if private businesses need to take a military mindset. You know, yeah, you could guess what I'll say, but what he says beyond that is interesting. General Perna up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Gus Perna is a retired U.S. Army four-star general, and he led, was chief operating officer of Operation Warp Speed. I encountered him in one of the best books I've read in a while, and you heard my interview with the authors Joe Nacera and Bethany McLean, The Big Fail, uh, what the pandemic revealed about who America protects and who it left behind. Gus Pern has been protecting America, and I wanted to talk to him about some of the lessons of his life in logistics and running that extremely successful and extremely critical program. Welcome to The Gist. I really appreciate it, Mike. Uh, it's a real pleasure, and thanks for the opportunity. So I know in the military there is this phrase, task and purpose. It's a, It's an online magazine, but tell me what the task and purpose was of your uh, endeavor there with Operation Warp Speed and maybe how the task differentiated or differed from the purpose. Yeah, so um, it it is a little bit different. You know, it's always, uh, I grew up always defined purpose uh, and then you figure out what and how you're going to do things. It's not the reverse. Uh, I see, unfortunately, I see see a lot of leaders doing that uh, and it usually leads to... uh, the fool's errand, for lack of a better uh, choice of words. Uh, and and uh, quite frankly, as we were watching, and I was extremely frustrated, you know, you weren't going to solve this big problem in a, uh, in a media soundbite at five o'clock, you know, which I, I thought was just uh, really drove me crazy. So when I got the call to do this, uh, several things went through my mind, and I'd be happy to talk to you about those, but the one thing I really had to get clarity on was purpose, um, because I felt that it, we really had a chance for not defining that right, which would have distracted us from doing what we needed to do. And so uh, I got I got the call on Saturday morning, uh, give or take a day. I was up in the Pentagon on Monday. I was in the Rose Garden on Friday. That week, was about codifying purpose and Mm -hmm. the purpose that the Secretary of Defense uh, finally approved and the chairman was safe and effective vaccines and therapeutics for the American people as fast as possible. Um, And so that became our purpose. The the what and how we did things was left up to me. Uh, And I'll be happy to talk about that. But, you know, once you have clarity of purpose, then uh, people underneath you can do things without you having to be involved in every single thing. That's why that's so important. Number one. Number two, you don't get these phone calls that says, hey, now we want you to, you know, track generators and track, you know, mass and track this and track that. Um, you know, because when you have that clarity, then it's really, it's easy to fall back on. Right. The purpose of the organization doesn't expand. The better you do at one thing, you don't get tasked with other things. And it doesn't. uh, And then it probably also means your resources don't get stripped away from you once everyone involved is clear on the purpose. Yeah. Also, you know, when you start proving that you can do things, people want to throw more stuff in your rucksack. Exactly. Um, and, And that becomes a huge distractor because the organization, you know, wasn't designed for that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, we had a, we had a serious situation on our hands and clarity of purpose is something that we've grown, I've grown up with and it was easy for me to get to and lead from there. What 
So when they say as fast as possible, is that useful or not useful to you? It's hard to give a deadline because it's unprecedented. So how could a deadline be at all reasonable, no matter what date they set? But on the other hand, without a deadline, where's the accountability? Yeah, I needed, we needed something. What I will tell you is not one time that I ever receive a phone call that says, you're not going fast enough. Um, or, you know, I need you to, you know, get here sooner, or how come you're not doing this? I never received that. You know, what, 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 what that important part was is, hey, we're not waiting around for two years. Um, you know, uh, and what's really important to connect to fast as possible was the upfront statement, safe and effective, right, uh, uh, vaccines and therapeutics. So that was my purpose. I could not violate that. I couldn't bend the laws of physics uh, to achieve faster than safe and effective would be. Uh, and, and I swore an oath to that, you know, quite frankly, in the big scheme of things. Uh, and that was my order. And I was not going to let that happen. Um, so but as you just articulated, you got to have a goal line that you're heading towards. You know, we can't just drift like a piece of wood going down a river, right? We had to have focus. We had to have energy. We had to hold ourselves accountable. You know, we had to fail early. We had to, you know, prioritize, et cetera, uh, to that end. And so that that's where I was, um, you know, and it was a good place to be. Trust me, I knew what was happening all around us and everybody that worked for me knew it. Um, th there was enough energy to get us to where we needed to be. When you joined, did you even know what the state of the science was? If the, uh, if the pharmaceuticals had been sufficiently developed, were you read in on even what RNA is and does? No, uh, but the beauty of um, Secretary Esper, Secretary of Defense, and Secretary um, Alazar, uh, you know, was the Secretary of Health and Human Services, was these two leaders got together and were taking the best of both organizations and putting it together, um, you know, in order to achieve uh, our purpose. And so Secretary Azar, I said Alazar, I don't know where I got that from. Secretary Azar uh, brought in Dr. Monsef Salawi, who is a world-renowned scientist, the best in the world in making vaccines and had been already credited with 14 vaccines that he was involved in bringing, you know, to, to bear. Um, and so when I got the phone call, my job was about setting up the distribution of the vaccine. It quickly expanded after we got together and we realized how much was not happening. Um, but I was focused on distribution. Dr. Salawi was focused on the right science and the selection of the right vaccine. Now, I sat in every meeting with him. We worked this, we were co-leaders um, and, and uh, we respected our own, our each of our expertise. Um, he would come in my office and, you know, give me a class on vaccines and mRNA and talk to me about the criteria for the six that he was going to recommend for selection, you know, because part of the, uh, the criteria was it had to be feasible based on trials right? It had to be, uh, you know, we had to get, be able to get it made. We couldn't have a vaccine that would take five years to make, right? you know, that kind of <clears throat> defeated the purpose. We couldn't have a vaccine where we couldn't get the 
the uh, supply chain to support it. We couldn't have a vaccine if we didn't have the facilities to put it in. So him and I had to work together on that. Uh, but he he was the guy, the genius, really remarkable leader, scientist, person that uh, had to be was responsible for the vaccine. Um, but as I said, we sat together because we are both going to be accountable to that end. So I remember during, uh, before the vaccine was available, reading about it, people in the know would say one of the major um, hurdles would be to ramp up production, that even if you could invent this, you know, there aren't enough factories in the world to make this vaccine. So to get over that hurdle, I want to ask you what you did, but just judging by your last answer, was part of the actual vaccine that you chose based on the fact that this is one that if that we think we can get enough factories and enough facilities online to make it? Yes, but not in a definitive, um, you know, go or no go format. It was, you know, we did the, the, what we call in the army mission analysis to see if it was feasible. And if it was feasible, then we figured out how we could, you know, bend the laws of physics to get there. Um, and if you'd let me back up one moment, you know, we had a clearly defined purpose, safe and effective vaccines for the American people, then figuring out what and how we had to do things. So, you know, the what? Dr. Slowey picked six vaccines, two, um, there was three different types, two in each category, so that we'd have diversity. And if one failed, another would be successful, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the second thing we knew we had to do was design trials that were more than normal, right? Normal, somewhere between one and 3,000 people over five years. You know, we wanted to do 30,000 people uh, in 90 to 120 days to have the mathematical solution to define or, 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 or tank the success of the vaccine. Then we had to figure out manufacturing, uh, you know, do we have enough? Do we need to create? Do we have enough equipment? Do we had to expand, et cetera? And not only for the vaccine, but also for syringes and needles, also for vials, also for consumables like plastic bags and tubes, et cetera. Then we had to figure out the distribution network that didn't exist. You know, uh, the flu vaccine goes out, it goes out to roughly 7,000 locations and then it's dispersed down further. You know, the vision I had was we wanted it to go out to as many places that people would consider normal, doctor's offices, hospitals, pediatricians, um, uh, CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, the mom and pa, you know, drugstore that everybody knew for, you know, their whole life. So we went from 7,000 locations to over 70,000 locations, which took a lot of work. And then, and then we had to figure out the administration of the vaccine, you know, how to track, you know, you know, how it goes in, et cetera, you know, how much vaccine stays good and, and it goes bad. So we had to be able to see ourselves. We had to create a system that we named Tiberius to go, track from manufacturing, the supply chain, the distribution, the administration, uh, and uh, if required, the destruction of vaccine if, if it went out of tolerance or if it was hurt. So we had to do all that. Now, to, to your question, you, 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 or I think as you were pulling through the thread through the needle, right, the way we um, bent the laws of physics is 
We bought risk out. So we went to the six companies. We did a contract with them as early as June. Uh, we said, no matter how the vaccine comes out, good or bad, we're buying it all from you. If it's bad, we'll throw it away. If it's good, we want you to plan for good. And then that way we started doing the process as early as June and July and August, September, which meant, you know, it's you have to make a little bit, get everything validated. Then you make a little bit more and get it all validated. Then you have to, you know, you have to it go. It's just you don't all of a sudden create this big giant vat right yes yes with with 100 million doses in it you have to you know scale up to it so when we bought when we took away the risk right that allowed them to start working through that process that's why when we when we uh increased the trials we were able to really um get the numbers we needed right for the fda the fda approved it you know, from May to December, when the FDA approved it in December, we were delivering vaccine 24 hours later uh, because because we did that. Um, and, and then other things we added to that, right? We could see ourselves, as I talked about, we created battle rhythm for meetings, you know, which included industry leaders had to sit in, scientists had to sit in. Uh, what, what does that mean, battle but that phrase, battle battle rhythm. Rhythm. It's, it's that a military mean? term. It's yeah. it's just a way to manage the flow of meetings so right. that they're connected, they're integrated. You have the right people there. Everybody knows what decisions are going to be made, etc. Um, you know, we brought in the right team from Department of Defense, handpicked people, experts in contracting, experts in medical, you know, experts in distribution and logistics operations. Uh, we kept it a flat organization, right? So decision-making was quick with me, right? It didn't take four weeks to get to me. They walked into my office that day, you know, et cetera. Um, and then probably the big thing that one of the things that I often think about, could I have done it differently is even though I was a four-star general and everybody knew who I was when I walked in the room, I felt it was very important not to walk in the room and say, I'm in charge, you're mm -hmm. going to do what I say. What I thought was important was we want everybody's expertise, we want everybody to be heard, um, and then we would drive operations to create the effects we needed. So in other words, we wouldn't linger on decision-making. We weren't looking for perfection. We were looking for safe and effective. We were looking for... Uh, volume. We were creating the necessary things that we needed to get done. So, you know, I wasn't waiting for perfect. So I bought a billion needles and syringes in, in July. We expanded vial capacity in July through October. We created and bought consumables in July and August, right? If all yeah. the vaccine went in the toilet, okay, that would have been something. But because we were driving ourselves to these effects, Right. We were prepared, um, you know, and so I, I dubbed that. I used to tell my team, hey, we're going to leave from behind. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not get up and yell and scream and follow me and beat your chest. This was, you know, we're dealing with industry, the most brilliant minds in the world, you know, in industry, the most brilliant scientists in the world. Right. The government agencies that are really just powerful organizations Mm -hmm. um, and we were collectively weaving them, you know, to get the effects that we needed. So yeah. 
leading from behind became a mantra uh, within my hundred people or so. It's obviously such a tough task. What were some of the tough elements that you didn't think would be tough that surprised you as being especially tough? Yeah. So, uh, and I, I know everybody knows this, but I'm going to say it to kind of set the conditions. It's been over a hundred years since we worked something like this, right? The Spanish flu. There was no playbook. There was no organization. There was no financial stream, you know, that came directly to you. Um, none of, none of that existed. So everything was done by scratch. Uh, quite frankly. Um, and I constantly, to your question, I, I had people, a lot of people trying to defend status quo. Well, this mm -hmm. is how we do the flu vaccine every year. You know, General, this is how we manufacture it. Oh, General, we know how to distribute it. You know, it was a lot of all that conversation, which was good to understand, but maybe not necessarily good for the effects we were trying to achieve. Um, and so I had to get people past status quo. Um, and I had to get them their, their intellect, their work ethic, their brilliance, thinking about being innovative and adaptive and agile and providing solutions, you know, understanding that there was going to be risk, but we would mitigate it, you know, with a red line of never violate safety, right, or effectiveness. But otherwise, we'd figure out, you know, what we could do. And, and perfection is the enemy of good enough. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and we had to press. So that was one. Two, um, I will tell you, I will tell you, and I'm proud of this because I served both presidents, President Trump's administration and President Biden's administration. Myself and the DOD team was the only two were the only people that transcended, you know, between them and stayed. Um, I received absolute priority and absolute resources from both from both presidents without question, mm -hmm. um, which was really, really important. With that said, there was, a, there was organizations that were so, so attached to their bureaucracy that they didn't know how to break out of that, right? They, you know, hey, look, I got it. You asked me how much money I think we need to for the get this done. I, I gave you a number. I'm not gonna sit here for three days and defend the number. I've already, I'm telling you the number, go get me the money. And if you don't want to get me the money, I'll see you tomorrow in the president's office. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, that's the kind of things you have to do, right? And, right. And both presidents, and I'm over-exaggerating my point, but both presidents gave that to us, which I thought was really, really powerful. But I was taken back a little bit by the defense of our bureaucracies. And we will be back after a break with more from General Gus Perna. Welcome back to The Gist. We continue our conversation with the man who was the Chief Operations Officer of Operation Warp Speed, General Perna. With your team, with your the brilliant minds in science and business, were there ever times when greed interceded or when pettiness, when defense of turf um, that was something other than just understandable based on how it's always been done. Something a little uglier uh, presented itself. I never saw greedy, right? It was a unity of effort to solve a problem, uh, you know, through uh, industry, 
academia and the government, right? It, it was really powerful to watch and, and I was proud of it. Um, you know, every once in a while, we'd all fall into, we, we all have our organizational or individual purposes. You can't help that. That's, you know, that's life and you just got to work your way through that. Um, and that's why you have meetings and you drive them and, and you know, the battle rhythm and, and you know, a leader that's willing to assess can take risk and move. Um, you know, so never greediness. Um, I did see uh, every once in a while somebody willing to fall on their sword because this is the way we did it. I We should be in charge, not you. I don't understand why you're here. We're the experts. Um, and, and so, you know, it was really easy. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it was simple. If they didn't listen in public, then we went in private and we had a conversation about, okay, here's what's happened. <laughs> Dr. Slowey and I are in charge. Mm-hmm. The reason why we're in charge is because it wasn't getting done before we came in. And now this conversation is over. I chose to do it professionally and not in public, but uh, don't let this continue. It was, you know, it was a good... We had good professional conversations that didn't last. You know, yes. the situation didn't last. Um, again, we're all humans, right? You, you don't want to be, you're a professional. You want to be good at it. You you know, it's, it's not easy to be told you're not doing your job. Um, and, and that wasn't the case. Everybody cared. Everybody understood the problem. Everybody just had different ways of trying to solve it. Was it more a problem that there was not enough data or too much data? Yeah, no, so that's an important question. Um, I think, you know, and I would never speak for Dr. Salawi, um, you know, him and the scientists really, you know, they were the experts and they had what they needed to, to make uh, their decision. Uh, and so, and I have absolute trust and confidence in that. I really do. In them as individuals, professionals, and really elite people in their field. Um, that where data really uh, came into play on my side was about, you know, do we need more manufacturing capability? Does that mean we need more equipment? Where is the equipment? How much of it do we have? Do we need to get more? How do I access it? What's the best ways to distribute it? Um, now, you know, truth in lending, that, that's what the U.S. military does. You know, we're, we're told to figure something out. We we define the problem. We take in as much information as we can, facts and valid assumptions. We develop courses of action. We understand the risk of each of them, and we make a decision. And we move out. Um, you know, and if it was, if the decision wasn't working out best, you assess what do you need to do to keep it moving. What do you need to change, or do you got to go to a different one, right? And that's just the way we operate. Um, and, and that occurred on a couple occasions. Um, and, and we just got through it. You know, I'll give you a simple one. I think we were two weeks into delivering the vaccine. First week of 5 million doses went out. The second week, uh, almost 15 million doses went out. The third week, we were about to put 20 million doses out and a major snowstorm hit the Midwest, mm-hmm. shut down all of our distribution centers. I mean, shut them down six and seven feet of snow, right? Um, and so what do we have to do? We had to, you know, see ourselves, understand who didn't get what, where it had to go. And I told the team, I said, okay, I got it. Tell me when the snow's going to be gone, go figure it out. And then tell me how you're going to not only deliver this week's 
but next week's vaccine at the same speed, right? So I, I essentially doubled their requirement. And I said, and you don't get any extra time. Conversation's over. Well, that takes data and information and planning and execution and teamwork. And, 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 and but, you know, people, people don't know, you know. Yeah. The people in California were mildly interested in the snowstorm. Where's my vaccine? <laughs> That's right. You, you know what I mean? Thinking about their arm and their life. Right. Yeah. But I would call the governor, say, hey, governor, here's what's happening. I, we, you know, we had a great interaction with all the governors. Yeah. And I heard you saying you could, you were good at voice recognition by the end. Someone would get yes. you on the phone and you know which governor it was, which mayor it was. <laughs> you probably haven't met. There are probably times when you have never even met these people in person. And maybe since you retired, you oh, did. Oh, absolutely. And you're like, oh yeah. Remember the 30 calls we had over the Zoom and the phone? Yeah. Absolutely. And you know, the phone calls depend on what we, and, and rightly so. They were the leaders of their states and, um, you know, I appreciated they were taking responsibility and being accountable um, uh, some way better than others. But, you know, at the end of the day, they were all rowing, trying to do what was right. This was an unbelievable accomplishment, an unbelievable American accomplishment. And then in the wake of it, I don't know that it is, I, I think the best that we could say is that it's by and large been taken for granted. And maybe the worst we could say is we're still squabbling about petty things related to or just totally papering over this unbelievable accomplishment. Look, I, I gotta tell you, I, I uh, you know, I, I look, I, <laughs> my grandparents came here uh, in 30, early 30s, right? Uh, small business owners really worked hard. You know, I was given opportunities to go to college um, and rise to the highest levels of the army. I, I just am a big believer this is the greatest country in the world. Um, and to that end, when we work together collectively as a nation, we can get anything done and nobody can do anything to us. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm pretty proud of the way that happened. You know, we had a defined purpose. Um, we had priorities and resources and we had unity of effort, right? Uh, despite... Uh, you know, red or blue or all this crazy stuff going on. The people that were responsible for doing it were working together every single day to get it done. Um, and, and it's okay to have, you know, disagreements, not disrespect. You know, you want that when you're trying to do things. Yeah. But at the end of the day, decisions were made and we drove on it and we held ourselves accountable. It, it was the hardest I personally ever worked. Um, you know, it was seven days a week. They were really long days. Um, and, and I've been, you know, I, I, I've been to Iraq three times, uh, twice as a commander and once as a staff officer, to, you know, um, and so it was worth every, every, I, I was supposed to retire when I got the call. I was a month out from retirement. Right. And, and my wife heard me talking to the chairman I walked out. I told the chairman, okay, we're moving. I'll be up there uh, Monday. Uh, I walked out the door. My wife, who just <laughs> remarkable person, she says, okay, I guess we're not retiring. Give me the timeline. I'll figure out how to move what we need to move you. Right? I mean, that's how it went. Ready? Go. Yeah. Um, uh, because that's what we needed to do. And uh, I, I, I personally think it made a huge difference. There's some, you know, every once in a while, somebody recognizes me. I, I, I got on a plane a few months ago um, and I, I usually sit down, I put on the headphones and I just, you know, I start reading 
Uh, and uh, a nice lady uh, tapped me on the shoulder. So I took off my headphones and she goes, I know who you are. And I said, okay, great, mm -hmm. thanks. And I put my headphones back on. And, and then she tapped me on the shoulder. <laughs> and I took off my headphones and she goes, I didn't take the vaccine. I said, hey, that's a personal choice, uh -huh. you know. What, what I'm proud of is we made it available for you to have that choice. And I put my headphones back on. And she, and she, she tapped me on the shoulder again and she goes, don't you want to know why? I said, no. She doesn't seem great at taking cues, by the way. But said, go ahead. <laughs> I said, no, it was a personal choice. I'm not upset. I'm, you know, that's, that's what makes us a great country, right? I'm not going to. I did what I was told to do. We worked hard at it, you know, and the church. Well, I don't know what was in it. Okay. Well, this time I couldn't, I couldn't avoid. I said, hey, do you take the flu shot? She goes, oh, yeah, every year. Oh, what's in the flu shot? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. And I put my headphones back on. And <laughs> you know. I want uh, I want to ask you a couple of questions just about your expertise and maybe one or two about your uh, biography. One, how attenuated should the supply chain be? I understand that there are risks and when it breaks down, we all say, oh my God, we can't get these necessary uh, items uh, into America. But at the same time, it's not 1954 and it can't be that everything is made from the factory within 100 miles. So is there a good answer to that? This is my personal opinion, okay? Just so everybody listening, I don't... The, the supply chain is is defined by the purpose you give it. If you're an industry company, president, CEO, and you define the supply chain as something that's necessary, but you want it to be cheap, right? Because you want costs to go down. Well, that's what's going to happen. You, it's going to get disrupted, Things are going to happen. Ports are going to close. Transportation nodes are going to be cluttered or shut down or something's not going to be available. Um, you know, if your purpose is I always want my uh, supply chain to enforce and enable quality manufacturing on time, then you make different decisions. You have multiple places to get it. You set up multiple supply chains. You put in different storage capability, uh, et cetera. Now, it's an extreme, those two examples I gave you. My point is it's the leadership decision. Uh, and we're yeah. a global world, uh, and I don't think that's ever going to change. Um, and I think it's- Well, also what that- what that tells me is that there, there's no right answer. There's only trade. That's right. And, and just be, just be very intelligent and purposeful about understanding yeah. those trade offs. You, if, yeah. if I was, uh, I don't know if I, if some CEO, if I was a, if I got, was a board member, some CEO was telling me, oh, we can't get all this done. Where our profits are down because the supply chain is not working. I'd say, oh, bull crap. It's not because of the supply chain. It's because we didn't lead our way the right way. We didn't make the right yeah. decisions. That's what I fundamentally believe, right? You know, barring nuclear war, right? Um, or a satellite or a meteor hitting the Pacific Ocean and wiping out everything. That's what I personally believe. Um, now to your, as you alluded to, you know, do, do I think we could do a lot more in this nation manufacturing both, you know, uh, supply chain and end products. Yes, I do. Um, with that said, 
uh, it is really expensive to make things in America, right? For all the right reasons. We have the best safety. We have the best environmental laws. We believe in taking care of people, right? You know, treating them right. Uh, but that is really, really expensive to do. And you got to understand that. You, you don't make the cheapest car while you're paying all those things. Um, you know, uh, so it's a trade-off in the decision-making of, of that, right? I, I was mm-hmm. in an audience and somebody says, General, we got to, I know you believe this, we got to make everything in America. Well, not so fast, you know, Ranger. Um, you know, we got we to gotta wear, we got to make the right decision. Last question. I watch many news conferences where you took responsibility and you say, that's on me and you don't have your doses. And I don't know, maybe you were taking one for the team, but it seemed you were very forthright. Now, in reading about you and talking to you, you also had a lot of power. So maybe you were able to absorb some criticism. It did strike me as very contrary to what most leaders definitely most elected leaders do. They usually deflect criticism. So knowing that you maybe were in a different position than someone who relied on the will of the electorate, do you think in general, leaders can take a lot more blame than they think they could take? Yes. (laughs) I think no matter what position you're in, you're in the position of responsibility and accountability. I don't care if you're a CEO of a company or if you're an elected official or you're an army general. I, I don't care. End of conversation. This crap that we give people, uh, we accept that you know that they're not responsible and accountable is is going to be a problem. Um, you know. Now that's how I grew up. I had great leaders. I yeah, I had great parents. I had great leaders. Um, and you know, you were allowed to do those things. Now didn't mean you weren't going to get fired. You know, you, we don't suffer fools or incompetence. Um, and you're not allowed to make the mistake over and over again. You know, this is not like ship, it's leadership. Um, you know, but I'm a fundamentally believe two things. One, leaders have to think bigger than themselves and bigger than their organization, right? It's not about them. It wasn't about me, right? It was about my purpose, safe and effective vaccines for the American people, right? Uh, and it wasn't um, you know, about, oh, you know, what happens if we don't, if we got this wrong, you know, the side is going to get mad. And that's, I was mildly interested in it. That's why I was able to do what I did. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of what that situation was, but trust me, <laughs> I took care of it and I was not going to be distracted by the media doing a bunch of stuff or a bunch of people pointing fingers. And so, look, to my second thing, I'm responsible, I'm accountable, right? And we'll go from there. Uh, you think it's so bad, then fire me, okay? Uh, but I'm going to look myself in the mirror and I'm going to move out. Uh, and I think if more people did that, if if elected officials say, well, now what's the purpose of me being here? To do what's best for my state and my country or for me to get reelected? Hmm. You know, I mean, come on. That's crap. Gus Perner is a retired U.S. Army four-star general. He served as chief operating officer of Operation Warp Speed. Thank you so much. Mike, thanks. It's been a real pleasure. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The 
Senior producer is Joel Patterson, Michelle Pesca, CLO of Peachfish Productions. The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, Jeepru, Dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>